Well, guys, uh, we are going to be in Matthew 20 today. Matthew 20, we're going to be going over the first 16 verses of Matthew 20. Now, when I was a younger man, because I realize I'm getting increasingly old, so when I was a younger man, having recently just been very politely asked not to come back to that college I was attending at the time, I found myself in need of a job. And so I went to lots of job interviews for IT stuff, because that's, that's what I do. I'm an IT person. And one of them, I thought for sure I was going to leave this job interview with either a, a firm job offer in hand or quickly be offered an employment opportunity. See, I met them at their office right at the end of the workday, and we spent about two hours talking. And it, it wasn't just talking about IT stuff, which we certainly did a lot of that. They came to know that, yes, I knew my stuff, but we talked about life in general. We were just having a great time getting to know each other and having a great conversation. I clearly knew my stuff, and I was clearly a good fit with them, which is always important when you're going to be spending long nights with an IT team. You want to get along with these people. And I seemed to be a good fit for their needs as well. And as things la uh, wrapped up, the two gentlemen interviewing me said, well, do you have any other questions for us, Matthew? And I thought about this for a minute. And I said, yeah, you know, what does this position pay? What, what's my salary going to be? Well, as soon as I asked this, the air between us grew cold, the laughter stopped, and the interview was firmly over. You see, I later discovered that there's this odd belief that when you go applying for a job, you should never ask what they're going to pay you. Uh, I don't know if that's still a thing today, but it was definitely a thing back then, and I never, ever heard from them again. Today, we're going to be looking at the end of the discussion started by the rich young ruler, where he asked, what must I do to obtain eternal life? Now, hopefully everyone here remembers how Alejandro went over this uh, a couple weeks ago and recalls that this young man, unlike the Pharisees and Sadducees at the time, he came to Jesus genuinely wanting to know what he had to do. This wasn't a question designed to trip Jesus up. He really wanted to know, I've done all these things. Now, had he, had he done all those things? No, no. No, he, he was overestimating his own righteousness, but he was at least coming in a genuine, honest heart. You may also remember that at the end of this interaction, the end result was that he left in anguish. He was deeply grieved and sorrowful because he loved his great wealth more than he loved God. Now, as a result of this exchange, Peter gets to thinking, as Peter is wont to do, but in typical Peter fashion, he misses the point completely. See, he listened to Jesus tell the rich young man that if you sell all that you have and follow Jesus, then you get eternal life. And, and Peter goes, and he thinks, and he says, well, wait a minute, wait a minute. I got a question for you, Jesus. What was Peter's question? Uh, end of chapter 19, verse 27. What did Peter ask Jesus? Shout it off if you're there. Verse 27. Yeah. Yeah, he, he said, what, what do we get? You know, you, you said if you sell all your stuff and follow me, you'll get eternal life. We've done all that and more. What, what are we going to get? Peter wants to know, what's the salary going to be for the work he's done? And here we come to the central problem that Jesus is going to be correcting this morning through the parable that we'll be reading. Both the rich young ruler and Peter were both diminishing the manifold grace of God. They were under the impression that salvation was something that uh, you could buy through ritualistic practices, things like you observe the law. Should, should we observe 
the things God said? Absolutely. You know, God says don't kill. That's absolutely something we should not do. Yeah, I think that works. I don't think I did a ne- double negative there. We should not kill. Yes, and uh, things like observing the law, they, they thought they should be performing the sacrifices and, and keeping the festivals. By doing these things, they thought they would be buying their way into heaven. But we know that's not the case. In Isaiah 1, 11, it says, What are your multiplied sacrifices to me, says the Lord? I've had enough. I've had enough of burnt offerings of rams and the fat of fed cattle. I take no pleasure in the blood of bulls, lambs, or goats. And jumping down to verse 14, he says, I hate your new moon festivals and your appointed feasts. They've become a burden to me. I'm, I'm wary of bearing them. God is speaking to Israel here in the first chapter of Isaiah. And he starts off actually by comparing them to Sodom and Gomorrah. He says, you Sodom, you Gomorrah. And he's calling them this because of their endless sins. He's just fed up because of their endless sins to the point that he hates the very observances and sacrifices that he gave to them. In fact, he expounds on why he's fed up. Like we would think, well, I don't, I don't understand. God has said, do these sacrifices. So now why is he upset at me for doing these sacrifices? Well, Isaiah 29, 13, he explains that. He says, the reason I'm fed up with their sacrifices is because, yes, these people, they draw near to me with their words and honor me with their lip service, but their hearts are far removed from me. And their reverence for me consists of tradition learned by rote. Now, I, I like that word a lot. Is anyone familiar with that phrase, by rote? Does anyone know what it means to do something by rote? Okay, yeah, something memorized, but perhaps no understanding. That's, that's pretty close. That's a great definition. Um, I like the ver- definition of Merriam-Webster. It's close to that. Uh, it's, it is something that you do by mechanical or unthinking routine or repetition. And they give a great example sentence. It says, a joyless sense of order, rote, and commercial hustle. So it's not necessarily that you don't know it, although I, I think that's probably some people that they could do things just mechanically without having any understanding of why they're doing it, like me when I set up the sound. I'm like, I don't know why I'm doing this, but I, I've been taught that this is the way I do it. I'm doing it by rote. Uh, it, it's something you do mindlessly because you've done it a million times before. So, if, for example, does anyone know what this is? Is this something y'all deal with? Pie chart. It's not a pie chart. Th- this is something that I had to do a lot in school. I don't know if public school. No, it's not an Excel sheet. Multiplication table. Multiplication. I'm like, oh, man, I am starting to feel really old right now. So, okay, so. I don't know if homeschoolers, y'all, y'all get assigned pointless work like this, but in public school, I did this worksheet so many times, except we also had zeros. And I'm like, this is the stupidest row ever, zero, 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 all the way down the line. So yeah, this, <laughs> this is a multiplication table. For each square, you find the column and the row where it intersects, and you say, what is that? It's one times one. Okay, the answer is one. Now you do two, and one and two is two. So you have to do this. And the teacher, I got the feeling they'd assign this whenever they'd stayed up late the night before. And they'd have us, like, do variations of it. Like, okay, class, fill it out, and then color in the prime numbers. I don't know. And it was just so pointless, and I hated it. And it got to the point where I would mechanically do it, and I'd try any way to cheat the system I could. So, like, I'd do the entire row for a number. So, like, the number three, I'd do the entire row, and then I'd find the matching column. I wouldn't, I wouldn't try to figure it out. I just copy it. I'm like, I don't have to remember this because they don't care that I do it. They just care that I finish it. I did it all by rote. And that's what the rich young ruler and Peter were looking to by asking their questions. They wanted something they could do by rote. The rich young ruler wanted one more task that he could do to earn his salvation. P- 
Peter wanted to know, since he had already given up everything, what was he going to get beyond during salvation? And Peter's response, or excuse me, Jesus' response to Peter is to first reassure him that, yes, okay, there's going to be a reward. Remember, he says there's going to be 12 thrones, and your tw- the 12 disciples are going to sit on these thrones, and you're going to judge Israel. Yes, there's a reward for you guys. Calm down. But then he also says, but you're missing around. Your thinking, your thinking is flipped, completely opposite of what it should be. What you're receiving is not because of the works that you've done, but because of the Father's great generosity, which is what we're going to be going over this morning. That is the generosity of the King. So if you're not there, make sure that you're in chapter 20 of Matthew. We're going to be reading about the parable of the laborers and the vineyards. In this parable, just to give you kind of an idea of what's going on, Jesus, again, he's going to use something mundane, that's something common, something every day, and he's going to use that to explain a larger spiritual truth. And this time, the common or mundane thing he uses is the example of field hands, laborers working in a vineyard. Because remember that although the area surrounding Jerusalem, it, is it a very fertile land surrounding, not Jerusalem, but Israel? A lot of, lot of fertile areas surrounding Israel? No. Uh, surrounding Israel, it's deserts and wasteland and wilderness and, and no one lives there. But Israel itself is a beautiful country. Uh, it's, it's called the Fertile Crescent. And it's just this, this stretch of land that God set to be the wayfarer going from uh, the African continent into the European continent. And God ideally positioned Israel in this place that everyone would be traveling through at the time. And as a result of this fertile land, one of their staple crops was, in fact, wine. was making grapes. It was horrible wine, from what I've heard. Just, just the worst wine. But it was still one of their staple crops. So anyone who heard this message would have been aware of uh, the process of growing grapes, the process of going out and hiring laborers, especially during the harvest time when those fall rains would come and they didn't get the grapes harvested in time, those grapes would be ruined. So reading from our passage today, Matthew chapter 20, starting in verse 1, it says, For the kingdom of heaven is like a landowner who went out early in the morning to hire laborers for his vineyard. When he had agreed with the laborers for a denarius for the day, he sent them to his vineyard. And he went out about the third hour and saw others standing idle in the marketplace. And to those, he said, you also go into the vineyard, and whatever is right, I will give to you. And so they went. Again, he went about the sixth and the ninth hour and did the same thing. He went about the eleventh hour and went out and found others standing around. And he said to them, why have you been standing here idle all day long? And they said to him, because no one hired us. He said to them, you go into the vineyard too. When evening came, the owner of the vineyard said to his foreman, call the laborers and pay them their wages, beginning with the last group to the first. When those hired about the eleventh hour came, each one received a denarius. When those hired first came, they thought they would receive more, but each of them also received a denarius. When they received it, they grumbled at the landowner, saying, these last men have worked only one hour, and you have made them equal to us who have borne the burden and, and the scorching heat of the day. But he answered and said to them, Friend, I am doing you no wrong. Did you not agree with me for denarius? Take what is yours and go. But I wish to give this last man the same as to you. Is it not lawful for me to do what I wish with what is my own? Or is your eye envious because I am generous? So the last shall be first and the first last. 
This passage is often referred to as the parable of the workers in the vineyard or the laborers of the vineyard. And as we work our way through, we're going to see that the point or the theme of this parable is that God as king has the right to reward all who follow him according to his great generosity. God as king has the right to reward all who follow him according to his great generosity. And we're going to see that by breaking this parable into four sections. The first one we're going to do is we're going to see that the workers, they're going to be hired in verses 1 to 7. Next, we're going to see that the workers are paid in verses 8 to 10. In verses 11 and 12, we're going to see that the workers are angry. And finally, in verses 13 through 16, we're going to see that the workers are rebuked. The workers are hired, they get paid, they get angry, and they get rebuked. So let's look more closely at the very first section of the parable. The workers are hired. It's in verses 1 to 7. And I want to start by identifying the people and places in the parable just to make sure that we're all on the same page, that we understand who it is that Jesus is talking about and where it is that Jesus is talking about. So the first thing we see is that Jesus is telling us that he's going to compare the kingdom of heaven or the kingdom of God. Those are interchangeable terms in Matthew. He's going to compare it to something else. Who here remembers what the kingdom of heaven is? What's the kingdom of heaven? Anyone? I know it's been like two weeks since last we talked about it. Yes. Heaven, that's a good guess. The kingdom of heaven being heaven. Heaven is certainly a part of the kingdom of God's heaven. Anyone else have another guess? A lot of thinking. Okay, so I'll just give you the answer. Uh, And I like that this definition I'm going to take from the Lexham Bible Dictionary. It says that the kingdom of God or the kingdom of heaven refers primarily to God's kingly power exercised over creation and people. And I like this definition because it helps us keep in mind that the kingdom of God, the kingdom of heaven, it refers to God's coming kingdom, right? There's going to be a time when God comes. He's going to destroy the present earth and the present heaven. It's all going to be wiped away. He's going to create a new heaven and a new earth. He's going to reign there physically in our presence for all time. That is definitely going to be a place where we see God's kingly power exercised over over creation and people. But I also like that it helps us remember that it refers to God's present rule as king over every last Christian life that has ever existed or ever will exist. Because does God have the right to assert his kingly authority over you as Christians right now? Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely he does. So when we think about the kingdom of heaven and we say, hey, the kingdom of heaven is where God exercises his kingly authority, then we go, yeah, that exists right now. So we look forward to that future time when we have that perfect fellowship with God, but we also recognize that it exists right now. We are active workers, active ministers in the present kingdom of heaven. The kingdom of heaven uh, exists right now, and Jesus is using this parable to explain an aspect of, of what that kingly authority looks like. And and just as an aside, do you realize how amazing it is that Jesus takes the time to reveal so much about the character of God to us? This is, in in Matthew alone, this is the 10th out of 11 times that Jesus compares the kingdom of heaven to something else, uh, just so that we can better understand God's divine nature. So keep in mind that this is supposed to reveal something about God's nature, uh, let's go ahead and quickly identify the people and places uh, in this parable. So first of all, who do you think is the owner of the vineyard? Yeah. 
God is the owner of the vineyard. We're talking about God the Father. Uh, who are the workers? Us, more specifically? Christians, yes. The, the workers are Christians. How do we know this? Because they get a reward at the end. Okay, God's not going to be rewarding non-believers at the end. So we know that he is specifically talking to Christians. And finally, what is the vineyard? I like, I like where you're going with that. Not quite. Not quite. Yes. Kingdom of heaven, which is the world. Yes. So uh, we're, we're specifically talking about the world. Uh, and we know that because we as Christians, uh, we do absolutely serve in the church. We minister in the church. But aren't we called to also do something else outside the church? What are we called to do outside the church? You nod your head so you know. Witness to others. We're to witness to others. So yes, we minister in the church, but we also go out. And we, we, we serve those out and we tell them about God. So it is the world. So here we see that Jesus is saying that the kingdom of heaven, that is God exercising his will over people and creation, can be seen in the way God goes out calling people to himself to be his followers for the purpose of working in this world, either here in the church ministering to the saints or outside the church ministering to those who are lost and dying, telling them about Jesus. And using that framework, Jesus is going to reveal a greater spiritual truth about God's nature in his kingdom. So the kingdom of heaven is like a landowner who goes out and hires workers for his vineyard, and he does it at five different times, the first hour, the third hour, the sixth hour, the ninth hour, and the eleventh hour. Now, is there anyone here today who, much like myself, when I was your age, thought that the first hour might be midnight or 1 a.m.? The first hour of the day, that's, that's midnight. It's a little weird to me because I, I use military times. So the first hour of the day for me is zero, the zeroth hour. That's right, zero hundred. But no, what are we talking about when we say the first hour of the day in the Bible? Whenever they wake up. Whenever they wake up, yeah. Of course, I, I, I like to wake up at nine. I, I, I love to stay up late. I like to wake up nine. I don't get to because uh, I'm an adult. Instead, I have to wake up at more like six. But uh, I, I like to wake up at nine. What, what do you think? When the sun comes up, yeah. Uh, that, that's pretty right. It's when the sun comes up. So I always had to think about this growing up because I'm like, wait, I know, it's, I know it's not midnight. These people are not getting up at midnight to go work in the field. Uh, you know, you can work by starlight. It's not easy. Uh, you can work by a full moon a lot easier, especially with no light pollution. But I don't think they're waking up at midnight to work in the field. No, remember that mechanical clocks didn't, weren't invented in like the mid-1300s. I mean, let alone a digital clock that we carry in our pockets at all time just wasn't a thing. Uh, they didn't even have big, bulky mechanical clocks. They had water clocks, but those had to be calibrated against this other really cool device, uh, specifically a sundial. And this was super cool because they actually, they adjusted the, the lines such that according to the different seasons, it would hit the right time. Like they recognized in the winter time, the sun, the daylight hours are shorter, and so they made their hours shorter so that it was still a 12-hour day, even though the sun was up for less of those hours. But uh, sundials do have one major flaw, though. Do you know what the major flaw of a sundial is? Clouds. More specifically, they, they have one thing where they just don't work at all. Night. They don't work when the sun is up. Clouds, rain, nighttime. A sundial only works when the sun is up. So uh, whenever they measure the day, 
for a society that's timepiece ran around the working of the sun. The first hour was when the sun came up and the timepiece started working. That was the first hour of the day. Uh, so in this society at this time, the first hour was 6 a.m. That's when they'd go out and hire workers and they'd work a 12-hour day in the field. So saying the 11th hour of the day is the very last hour before the day was over and the people would go home and get paid. And that would be, the 12th hour would be about 6 p.m. So this landowner, he goes out at the break of day and he hires laborers to work in his field and agrees to pay them one denarius, which was the standard going rate for day laborer. And uh, then as the day wears on, he finds himself back in the marketplace at the third hour or 9 a.m. and he sees there's still unemployed people working there or standing around just waiting to be hired. And he says, yeah, you know what? I'll hire you, go to my field. And how much does he say he's going to pay them in verse 4? No, he doesn't say one denarius. What does he say he's going to pay them? Anyone who has an answer going once, going twice? Yes. Yeah, that's it. He says he's going to pay them whatever is right. And I love that they, they don't argue with this. They don't say, okay, well, define whatever is right. They go and they do it. They say, okay, you'll pay me whatever is right. I trust you. And they go to the field and work. And then he does this again at noon. He does it again at 3 p.m. And he does it at the last hour before the workday ended, the 11th hour, which is where that phrase comes from, by the way. If you ever heard that this is the 11th hour, this is where it comes from. Uh, he goes out and he still sees workers standing and he sends them to the field each time telling them the same thing. I'm going to pay you whatever is right. Now, I've, I've heard some people look at this exchange and they go, uh, you know, the reason the landowner had to keep coming back to the marketplace was because he, he just underestimated the amount of work that had to be done. Or, you know, he, he didn't really understand the way this stuff worked, and the day went on, he's like, whoops, I need more, more workers. Uh, but we've already identified of who, who the landowner is. Who was the landowner? It was God. It was God. And, and in a parable that Jesus is teaching to display that God rewards us in accordance with his great generosity, not according to our own labors, I don't think that God underestimated the amount of workers he needed in his own kingdom. Instead, this interaction is the first display of God's great generosity toward us. And to explain uh, what I mean by that, um, I want you to think about what the different times of day represent. What do you think they represent, these different times of day? Do you think they represent maybe church ages, that Jesus came in like the zero BC and he came again and got some more workers, the next generation, he came again the next generation and the 11th hour is like right before he came back? What do you think? Okay, uh, you're close. I think you're close. I think that's closer. Now, I, I wouldn't say do a hard and fast decades of the adult life, but yes, I think you're right. This is talking about our lives uh, because, remember, we're talking about what are you going to receive according to God's grace. So it wouldn't make sense for this to be in an age because a church age isn't going to receive a specific gift because you existed in that church age. We're talking about specific people. And we're talking about when God calls them to be his own. Because think about this. At North Lake right now, you're going to find people who, by the grace of God, y'all grew up in Christian homes. And y'all came to Christ at a very early age. And at the same time, if you go out this morning, I almost guarantee you that you're going to find someone who came to Christ a couple months ago. 
maybe even a week ago. And by the grace of God, I pray that every single Sunday, God will send someone to our church who has never heard the gospel before. And they're going to hear the gospel taught for the very first time, maybe even our own youth group. And they're going to see the way we interact with each other, the way we love each other, the way we serve each other. And they're going to go, this is something unique. And they're going to hear that gospel message that they are a sinner destined for hell because of their sins, but God provided a way of escape through his only son, the second person of the Trinity, Jesus Christ, and that all who turn to him for salvation have their sins forgiven. And I pray that that person hears this and goes, I am that sinner, Lord. Please save me. Because this life ends in an instance, and no one here knows if they're in their first hour, their third hour, or if you're going to die on the way home today, and you are right now in your 11th hour. We don't know. We don't know the, the length of the hours God has given to us. So this is the first display of God's great generosity as king over his kingdom, is that his gift of salvation is available to all of us, regardless of our age and how much time we have left in this life. And I feel like this is a truth that you and I, at least me, I get in the habit of, of taking for granted. Uh, I mean, setting aside for just a moment how amazing it is that God saves any of us, uh, how incredible is it that God gives us such a wide range to respond to his gospel? Because think about it, God would be completely within his right if the very first time I heard the gospel, that was it. Like, if I don't respond at that moment, if God doesn't put that response in my heart, you missed it, Matt, sorry. God would be within his right to say that. Or God would be in his right to say, you know what? Uh, you know, around the time you turn 40, statistically speaking, you're half dead. I mean, your life is half over by the time you're 40. I think the median age for guys is like 87 maybe, so 43 and a half. Is it 80? Straight up 80? I said 40? Like, if you don't have at least half your life, I'm not, I'm not going to buy a car that has less than half its life remaining. I'm not going to let a Christian, a person come to faith if you have less than half your, your life remaining. God would be within his right to set up whatever time he says is appropriate, but by his amazing grace, he allows that time to be as long as you are alive. There is no such thing as it being too late for you to come to Christ, because you know what it says in Hebrews 3.13 about how long we get to respond to Christ to turn to be our Savior? It says, exhort one another every day, as long as it's called today, that none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. Is there, is there ever a time when it's not called today? I mean, what, what happens with tomorrow? When I get to tomorrow, what does tomorrow become? Yeah, tomorrow becomes today. When, there's no, like as soon as I get to tomorrow, it's already today. It's always today. The ability for us to turn to Christ is always valid in this life. Uh, tonight's still part of today. It's just a specific part of today. So we are constantly to exhort one another to turn to Christ as long as we're alive because by the grace of God, uh, the chance for salvation is always available for us according to his amazing grace. So with the workers hired, we come to our second section of the parable and that is the workers are paid in verses 8 through 10. So at the end of the day, the landowner, he calls everyone up and, or he calls his foreman and tells them to start paying the workers with the ones hired last being paid first. And to everyone's surprise, how much does he pay them? Remember, he said, I'm going to pay you whatever is right. And what does he actually pay these people who only worked an hour? A denarius. A denarius. There it is. Uh, so he, he paid them the full wage. And that would have been a moment that surely would have shocked the people in the parable. And surely would have shocked 
Peter listening to the parable, and frankly, it should shock us reading this parable 2,000-some years later. Uh, Despite having only worked an hour, they get the full day's wage. And this is the second display of God's great generosity of king, as king over his kingdom. God's gift of salvation isn't diminished for those who come to him late in their life. It isn't diminished even if they come at the very last moment, like the thief on the cross. Because the landowner would have been well in his right to only pay them for an hour's worth of work. Uh, he would have been within his right to pay them less than an hour. Because let's face it, if he shows up at the, the 11th hour, let's say he shows up exactly at 5 p.m., on the dot. And he says, what are you guys doing? You're standing around. No one's hiring us. Okay, we'll go to my field. So they got to walk all the way out to his field, and then they got to find the foreman, and then they got to get an assignment, and then they got to get to where their assignment is, and then they actually start working. It's half an hour later. So maybe got 30 minutes of work out of these people before it was the end of the day. He would have been within his right to pay him less than an hour's wage. Yeah. Um, it would have been an Oz, and it, it equals to about one-tenth of a denarius. So he, he could have paid them that. He could have paid them even less than, than that. And he, he would have been within his right because they, they didn't do a full day's work. Uh, likewise, God would be in his right to say, yeah, you, belie- you believed in me as you lay dying in your bed. You believed in me for like five minutes. Congratulations. You get in, but you don't get to go to the really nice parts of heaven. Like, you get to be on the outskirts, okay? Uh, when we're saved, God doesn't apply just a little bit of Christ's life to us, do, do we? Remember, remember the, the, the amazing two-part process of salvation, or the two parts we get in salvation. The first one is that we get God's mercy. You remember what mercy is? It's, it's us not getting a punishment we deserve. So first of all, we get God's mercy, but then he also gives us his grace. He gives us a gift that we don't deserve, and that is the perfect life that Jesus lived is applied to us. So when we come to salvation, it's not that we get a tiny bit of that perfect life at first. We get the whole thing from the exact moment we are saved. Regardless of the amount of work these workers got done, regardless of when they were hired, the landowner pays them for having worked the full day. Then the workers who were hired first, they show up in verse 10. And they're feeling pretty good about themselves right now. They're like, look, all these other people, they got paid for the full day, and they worked, you know, half an hour, an hour. They worked three hours. They, okay, these guys were here, they worked nine, so it's weird they didn't get more, but hey, we're going to get paid a lot. Now, now, does anyone here have a job? Any workers? Anyone here have chores they have to do that their parents either pay them some money for or reward them for in some fashion? A few more people? Okay, so we're all kind of familiar with the idea that if I'm working the same job as Drew, let's say. Uh, let's say we're both, we, we walk up to Chick-fil-A at the same time, we both get hired there, and we're both doing the same job. It's pretty expected and normal that if I work five more hours than Drew, I make five times the minimum wage more dollars than Drew. Like, that's, that's pretty much how we all expect things to work. Or, or if I'm doing chores that I get paid for, if I do more chores than my brother, my parents are going to pay me more. This is normal and expected. So these people, the, the people who had worked all day, they weren't, they weren't being outrageous thinking that they were going to get paid more. Uh, this is 100% what they should have been expecting. But to everyone's surprise, they too receive but a single denarius. 
And as a result, we get to the next section of our parable, uh, which is in verses 11 to 12. The workers, they're angry. They, they, they start to grumble and complain. The Bible tells us that when they see that they received the same amount as everyone else, they were upset. And they then just grumble and complain on their breath, like, oh, I can't believe this is so unfair. My boss never shows up, and I'm doing all the work, and he's just staying at home and getting all the money. No, they're actually complaining at the, the landowner, saying that it wasn't fair that they were paid the same amount as the people who only worked for an hour, because they had borne most of the burden of the day. They had to work during the hottest parts of the day. And I think that, honestly, this is the second reason Jesus specifically chose the parable of the vineyard. Because the people today, they wouldn't have just been aware of, okay, there's day laborers and they go out in the field. That's pretty normal. We see them milling about the marketplace. Yeah, I'm aware of it exists. They would have been aware of uh, just what a hard process it was to care and grow for these wine grapes. Now, I, I grew up more on concrete than on dirt. Uh, I'm not too familiar with the ways of farm life, so I had to do a bit of research. And as part of as researching, I, I found a lot of interesting things. But one the more interesting quotes I saw repeated a lot was that, oh, it's easy to grow grapes, but it's really hard to grow good grapes. Like, if you want to make good wine grapes, it takes a lot of work. If you just want to grow a grape to make quote-unquote wine, I mean, you can, throw a, you can throw it in the Texas soil and you'll have some wine grapes. But if you want good grapes, it takes work. It, you have to, to plant them right. You have to care for them right. You've got to prune them right. You've got to make sure the soil is the right content. You've got to make sure they're getting the right, right water, not too much sun, not too much shade. Well, definitely not much shade. They need a lot of sun. But you've got to keep their water levels perfect. Uh, you've got to prune them at the right times. You've got to harvest them at the right times. You've got to ferment them at the right times. It's an insanely hard process. Uh, each step must be done carefully and correctly. These workers down in the field probably would have looked something like this. Notice, notice how the vines, they don't really go up too high. Uh, for most of the day, you are working under the relentless beating heat of the, the sun. And you, you got these baskets, and as the day goes on, you fill them up. And what happens as you fill up a basket? It gets heavier. It gets heavier. So they're over here doing this back-breaking work, sometimes up high, sometimes down low, always with this basket, and then they're having to walk and dump it out. And they do this all day long. It was hot. It was dirty. It was back-breaking work. And Jesus says, the master storyteller crafted this parable specifically so that Peter listening, and by extension, us listening, would come to this point in the story, realize how hard they had been working all day long, and ideally that we would feel the exact same way that the workers felt in the parable, the feeling that some kind of injustice was being committed right now by the landowner. Now understand that we as laborers, or, or understand that the laborers working in the vineyard represent us, and, and, and we are to do God's work in the world. Uh, or a simpler way to say this is that we're to be ministering. We talked about this, right? We minister in the church. We minister outside the church. Uh, when we serve in the church, we're ministering to the saints, and uh, we all know that part of the Christian life is that God has called everyone to ministry, right? Like, like none of us just get to sit around and be like, I, I don't have to be involved in ministry. Uh, it's, that's, that's what adults do. That's what other people do. Like, even y'all, even if y'all don't sign up for the forum, this isn't like, hey, guys, <laughs> you know, the Bible tells you you should be serving, so everyone go home and sign up on the online forum, yeah? 
No, I'm, I'm not trying to browbeat you here. Uh, there are ways that you can minister within your own family, okay? We'd love it if you came in and signed up and, and served with us. But there's ways that you can minister in your family, in your life right now. But all of us as Christians have been called to ministry. We see this in Ephesians 4, 11 through 12, where Paul says that he gave some as apostles and some as prophets and some as evangelists and some as pastors and some as teachers, talking about the different roles that God has given to different people in the church. And the roles of the, the first group, the apostles, prophets, evangelists, pastors, teachers, their role is for the equipping of the saints for the work of service to the building up of the body of Christ. So understand that as a teacher tells you about the Bible, we're equipping you so that you can go out and you can minister to other saints. And that this is the God-given privilege that each of us here get to experience for the purpose of building up the body of Christ together. But there's a temptation, isn't there, to be like the laborers in this parable. We can be tempted to kind of view different ministries as having different positions of honor or different greatness to them. And I, I don't mean different uh, positions of honors the same way that God refers to in 1 Timothy 5.17, where, where Paul says, hey, elders who do their work well, they deserve double honor. You know, that's talking about how we need to be respecting them for the fact that uh, they are taking on this incredibly, uh, I, I hate saying burdensome, but it weighs on the soul. You ask, you ask any of the elders that uh, the responsibility they bear is a heavy burden, but one that they bear with gladness. Uh, and so because they have taken on that burden and they are good at it, we are to respect them and we're to submit to the authority that God has given them. So we're not talking about uh, that sort of honor. When I say that we give certain ministries a position of honor, uh, I'm talking we have a temptation to seek out the ministry that's going to get us the most recognition sort of honor. Uh, and we tend to look down on the person who only sweeps the floors, who only sets up chairs. Like that's, a, that's kind of a down here ministry. We want kind of something up here. Or maybe... Maybe we get tempted to do the opposite, where we have the thing that we're good at, and we devalue it. And we say, you know what? My ministry just, it's not that great. It's not that important. Like, I, I hate that this is a gift I have. All I can do is serve in the nursery. This is, I, I, wish, I, I wish I was out there teaching. That'd be such a cool gift to have. And this mindset of devaluing our own ministry or overvaluing some other ministry or looking down on others, uh, is exactly what Jesus is highlighting as the workers grumble and complain. They are looking down on their fellow workers for not doing as much as they did, or for not being there as long as they had been there. And that brings us to the workers are rebuked in verses 13 through 16. The landowner listens to the grumbling of the workers, and he says, friend, I'm doing you no wrong. Did you not agree with me for a denarius? Take what is yours and go. But I wish to give this last man the same as you. Now, I want you to know something here. How does he rebuke them? What's the very first word he says? What's the first word he says when he rebukes them? I'm going to count that as a hand raise. Yep, it's a hand raise. Just look at your Bible. What's the first word he says to them when he rebukes them? You can phone a friend. That's fine. Friend. Oh. I even gave you the answer from a friend. Yes, it was friend. He says to him, friend. Guys, this isn't a harsh rebuke. This is a loving rebuke. I mean, think about the way Jesus rebuked Peter. Remember, Jesus says, I'm going to go to Jerusalem. I'm going to die. And Peter pulls him aside. The son of God that he just confessed as being the son of God. 
And he says, you're wrong. <laughs> Look, you are wrong about this. You need to stop talking like that, Jesus. And Jesus says, get behind me, Satan. Your mind is on the things of man, not on the things of God. That was a harsh rebuke. The rebuke we see here is a very gentle rebuke. He's reminding them, friends, I'm doing you no wrong. You agreed to do this, and I'm giving you what we agreed to. The rich young ruler, he wanted to know what ritual he had to perform to earn eternal life. Peter wanted to know what uh, the extent of the rewards he was going to get for going beyond which, what the rich young ruler had done. Jesus' answer here in verse 15 to both of these mindsets is you don't need to be hung up on worrying what you're going to get or what the one serving alongside of you is going to receive. Because it doesn't matter if you're in a teaching position or if you're in a serving position. From the pastor all the way down to the one who is never even known by most people in the church, but faithfully serves in the ministry using the gifts that God has given them, God has good news for you, that God is gracious to you for your faithful ministry. There we go. Got stuck there for a minute. Sorry, guys. I want you to think about this. Uh, we see a great example of this in Psalm 23.5. Does anyone know that just off the top of their head? It starts off with, he prepares a table. He prepares a table before us in the presence of our enemies. He anoints my head. My cup overflows. I, I love this verse because what David is doing here is he's crafting this picture. Imagine that the grace of God was liquid and that we, our lives, were a cup. And God pours this liquid of grace into us. He doesn't give us just a sip, like a very fine uh, wine. You know, you, you get just a sip, you swift around, you inhale the aroma, you get a sip, and then you spit it out when you're done. Wine tastings are weird. Well, you, you shouldn't drink wine, you're underage. But God doesn't give us just a sip. He doesn't fill up our glass, mostly full. You know how you, you fill up a glass, but you don't want to spill it, so you leave, you know, about that much space. So as you walk around, it, it doesn't spill. He doesn't do that. He doesn't fill you up right to the brim. God's grace pours out of us so abundantly that it completely fills the cup and then just overflows endlessly. God gives us his grace lavishly to the point that we don't even have the capacity to accept all the grace he gives us. So rather than being envious of the gift or the position that God has given to someone else, we should rejoice at the gift God has given us and use it to the best of our, our abilities. Because Jesus ends this, ends this parable by repeating the same thing he said at the end of Matthew 19, verse 30, saying that the last shall be first and the first shall be last. God is lavishly gracious on us. Uh, when you read through the Bible, you'll see how each member of the Trinity pours out this grace in their unique way. You see that God the Father, he overlooks the sins committed in the past because of what Jesus did. He overlooks our sins right now because of what Jesus did. The Son purchased our forgiveness through his death on the cross. The Holy Spirit, he seals our salvation. And then he gives us every spiritual gift according to his will. And, and while all that is abundantly true, the, the way that the three members of the Trinity work together to pour out their, their grace on us, we also have to remember that even though that grace is overflowing out of us like a cup that can't hold it all, God is still sovereign the ruler of his kingdom, and one day he's going to graciously give us rewards as he deems best. This, this isn't a participation trophy time. God gets to decide what each of us is given. 
And God's not going to reward us because of the position we had in the church. He's not going to reward us for how long we were Christians or how short we were Christians. It won't matter if we were a missionary who went across the globe or if we were just a single parent who every day quietly raised their children to faithfully serve God. What matters is that we faithfully did the work God called us to. For proof beyond this parable, just look at 1 Corinthians 12. Uh, One of the issues going on in the church of Corinth, you may recall, is that they had a completely wrong understanding of the spiritual gifts the Holy Spirit gave. And Paul corrects this, pointing, uh, pointing them to the fact that, yeah, okay, look, there's lots of gifts. There was speaking in tongues. There were things that were specifically there for proving the church was from God, these super miraculous gifts. And then there are other gifts, uh, and they're putting too much weight on the super, supernatural ones. He says, no, no, all gifts. Yeah, there's a lot of different gifts, but it's still just the one spirit giving them. And yeah, there's a lot of ministries. There's pastors, there's teachers, there's uh, the people who went out to serve the widows, there's people who open up their home. Yeah, there's lots of mysteries, but guy, or ministries, but guys, there's only one Lord. He's the same Lord that provides those ministry opportunities. Then down in verse 15, after comparing the church to the body and the members of the church to different parts of the body, uh, Paul says, if the foot says, because I'm not a hand, I'm not a part of the body, is it not uh, it is not for this reason any less part of the body. Does that make sense? I mean, well, let me just add, does that, that sentence make sense to you? Like, if my hand goes, oh, I'm not an eye, so I don't count as being part of your body, Matthew, is, is it still attached to me? Can it saying that it's not part of the body because it doesn't have as good as a position as the eye make it less part of the body? No. No, that's ridiculous. It's my body. It's all my body, and it doesn't matter what the different functions are for that body. It can't be less or more of a part of my body. God is calling you to be workers in his vineyard with different roles and for different amounts of time. So don't be envious or let it upset you that you haven't been given the same gift as someone else. Uh, God is going to generously reward you for your faithful service. After all, remember, God is the one who gives you your gift. And then God is the one who makes that ministry opportunity for you to serve in. Yeah, Ian. Still part of my body, just removed from it. Remember, you never stretch a parable too far. It'll break. It's <laughs> Church just, uh, I, I, think, I think we've broken that metaphor there. So, how can we apply this parable to our lives, kids? How can we apply this passage to our life? First of all, I want you all to remember that God doesn't put priority on the same things you and I put priority on. Uh, there will be people that we think God should give the most honor to. We think that they were amazing people. They served God faithfully. I want you to remember, the, the Bible tells us at the great white throne judgment, a lot of people will come before him and say, Lord, Lord, did I not cast out demons in your name? And God's going to say to them, I never knew you. And at the same time, there's going to be someone that we never knew, someone just serving quietly day in and day out, And God's going to take that person and he's going to give them a high place of honor. And he's going to say, well done, my good and faithful servant. As a result, secondly, don't look down on others for having a ministry that you think is unimportant or for having only recently come to Christ. I get it. As flawed humans, it's hard to not put an emphasis on certain ministries. Um, For example, back when all the churches shut down, my wife and I realized that we were living in sin, that we had cut ourselves off 
from the body of believers. We weren't going to church. And this was long before COVID became a thing. It's just during COVID we realized this is wrong. This is sin and we need to fix what we're doing. And so we started to look around for churches that were open and we saw North Lake and we were hesitant to come here because we knew that we hadn't connected at Countryside and most of the people who were here at North Lake at the time were Countrysiders who would come as a church plant. And so we were afraid we wouldn't connect here. We didn't get to the door before Mary Allen ran out and gave Amy a big hug and embraced her and was so happy to see us. We wouldn't be here if it weren't for a lowly greeter, okay? What we put emphasis on isn't what God puts emphasis on. You don't know how God is going to use the ministry he's put you in to minister to someone else in a mighty way. And in the same way, third, and finally here, uh, don't look down on your own ministry. Or not finally, but third, don't look down on your own ministry. Um, you don't know what God's going to do with you in your ministry. Finally, most importantly, remember that God is king and he gets to generously reward his servants with what is his as he deems best. Uh, so let's go ahead and pray here. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this day. We thank you for the opportunity for us to read your scriptures and to see what an amazingly generous and gracious king you are. Lord, we pray that we wouldn't grumble and complain about the gifts you give us or the gifts you've given to our fellow workers. We ask that you would help us to be good and faithful workers in your vineyard using whatever gifts you've given us faithfully to the best of our abilities. We likewise pray that we would not discourage others for the gifts that you have given them, but that we would work together in the tasks you have provided for us to build up your holy church. Father, we love you, and we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.